morning, everybody. Um, the reading will be taken from 3 John and um, in the Church Bibles, the blue one is page 873 and the hardcover is page 274. As we turn to God's Word, the psalmist tells us that His Word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. So we pray for His grace to listen carefully to His Word this morning. 3 John The Elder To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell you, tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was the it was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Elisa very much for that very clear reading and do please keep your Bibles open at uh, the passage that Alita has just read for us. 
I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word and holding it in our hands. And we pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands, so that as we read about you in the pages of Scripture, our hearts may be warmed with a renewed awareness of your love, our minds may be filled with your truth, and our lives may be equipped to serve and glorify your holy name. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as I was preparing for today, um, I came across the, the last words of a dying man to his friend. Um, he was writing in the third century, so this is more than 1,800 years ago, but what he, has, what he says is so fresh and so up-to-date, it might just as well have been written last week. This is what he wrote. It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure in our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not they are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are Christians, and I am one of them. Now that's a very moving testimony from a dying man, isn't it? Um, this man looked at the Christian community in the town or the village or wherever it was, and he observed that they had found a joy greater than anything this world has to offer. A joy that was not diminished by any of the troubles and trials and opposition that is so common in this life. And their testimony was so powerful that this man gave his life to Jesus. Now the Bible has got a great deal to say about Christian joy. And it talks about it in a variety of ways and contexts. Some of them are instantly familiar. And so in the Old Testament we find Nehemiah saying, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Now over the centuries, those verses and others like them have been a tremendous source of encouragement to, to thousands if not millions of Christians. But you know, sometimes the Bible talks about joy in a context where we're not really expecting to find it. So, for example, in uh, Acts chapter 5, the apostles are flogged for their faith. But we're told in verse 41 of that chapter that they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now that's a surprise, isn't it? Um, how on earth do you rejoice when you've had the flesh on your back removed by a soldier's lash 
How do you do that? It's not what we expect. There's another of these unexpected references in the passage we're looking at this morning. You'll find it in verse 4, where the Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now that's a marvellous testimony, isn't it? But you know, when he wrote this letter, the Apostle John was an old man. Uh, He might well have been pushing 90. But instead of being preoccupied with the very real problems that usually come with extreme old age, he is still able to think about other people. And his greatest joy is to hear that his children are walking in the truth. Now, you wouldn't actually expect a 90-year-old to be thinking like that, which means, of course, that you and I need to think very carefully about it. I'm going to return to that verse uh, a little bit later, but in order to help us understand what he's saying, I want to start by putting that verse in the context of the letter as a whole. In some ways, this letter is actually different to the previous two. If John's first letter was circulated around a number of churches in what today we call modern Turkey, and the second letter was written to an individual church, this third letter is to an individual Christian. So here we have personal correspondence. Uh, We almost have the feeling, don't we, that we're reading a personal email. But if it's personal, it certainly isn't private. It's been preserved in Scripture for our benefit because it has something to say to us about life in a local church in every age and generation. And the message emerges from what John has to say about the three people he mentions by name. We'll look at br- briefly at each one in turn. First, John introduces a Christian friend. A Christian friend, verses 1 to 8. His name is Gaius. Now, apparently he was a leader in the local church. And quite clearly he enjoyed a very close relationship with the Apostle because in verse 1... John says he loves him in the truth. And then on four separate occasions through the letter, John addresses him as dear friend or my dear friend. Now apart from that, we don't know really very much about Gaius. But John's prayer tells us something very significant about him. Come with me to verse 2. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Now what is so very significant about that is that it is the reverse of the way that most of us think and pray. You see, we tend to wish and hope and pray that people will be well, uh, that they will recover from cancer or rheumatism or whatever it is and then at the end we pray that they will be spiritually strong through the ordeal verse 2 is the opposite 
John's saying, look, I know you, Gaius. I know that you are spiritually strong. And I pray that God will give you good physical health to match. Now just imagine for a moment uh, if the physical health of each one of us in church this morning were tied to our spiritual health. I guess some of us might have to retire to bed and take the rest of the week off. But not Gaius. He's a man who's taken to heart the teaching of Jesus, who said that we are to live with eternity's values in view, where moth and rust do not corrode and thieves do not break in and steal. How do we know that Gaius is living like that? Well, verse 3, John tells us, It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. John was absolutely overjoyed to hear about his faithfulness to the gospel. But it wasn't simply a question of his grasp of doctrine. No, it was also a question of how it was working out in Gaius' life. Because, as we've seen throughout this series in John's letters, being a Christian means not just simply knowing the truth and believing it. No, no. We also have to walk in the truth. It must be the reality on which we base our entire lives. Well, that's how it is here. Although Gaius lives at some distance from John, some people have come back to John and they've said, look, This Gaius, you know, he's absolutely wonderful. Uh, He's a true champion of the gospel. He understands it. He teaches it well. He thinks it through. He reflects on it. It's as if he, he walks in the shadow of the cross. He is such an encouragement to other people. Now, the particular thing in Gaius' life that testifies to his faithfulness is in verses 5 to 8, but it just needs a little bit of clarification so we can understand it. Towards the end of the first century, the, the church was growing so fast that it was sometimes difficult to have a really well trained pastor in every congregation, in every assembly. In fact, if you read the account of Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts, On the way out, you find that Paul and Barnabas were planting lots of churches all over the place. And then on the way back, they were appointing elders. And if you look carefully at the chronology, some of these newly appointed elders had only been Christians for a few months. So no one's been to Bible college. No one knows how to preach a sermon. And so, to address that issue, the early church commissioned gifted preachers to visit these local assemblies and supply the teaching. But there was a problem. Because in those days, there was no university education. Instead, what you had was uh, travelling professional scholars. And these men would pitch up in your town or village and they would set up their stall in the local marketplace teaching what they called philosophy. 
But that wasn't actually the academic discipline that we think of when we talk about philosophy today. No, it was, it was much more like life skills. And so they taught maths and law and uh, communication skills, rhetoric, everything that you needed for a successful career in the ancient world. And rich pagans would send their sons, not their daughters, interestingly, but they'd send their sons to sit at the feet of these philosophers, and they were happy to pay top dollar for the privilege. Now, the problem was that these travelling Christian preachers that I mentioned a moment ago were considered to be part of that world. But they didn't want to be thought of like that. After all, they they were announcing the gospel of God. They were giving people the word of life. And they didn't want to be seen as mere peddlers of the truth. So, in order to distinguish themselves they refused to take any payment from the pagans. But of course, you still have to eat, you still have to buy books, you still have to study and travel. Who's going to pay for that? And the answer is, men like Gaius. And in verse 5, the apostle praises him for it. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, meaning the travelling preachers even though they're strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality. The word there means literally love for strangers. That's what the word means. We, therefore, ought to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. Now, friends, I want to encourage you to look at that last verse, verse 8, very carefully. Because it's a terrific verse for anybody who would really like to be involved in frontline Christian work but who can't due to personal circumstances. In God's sight, you can still be a fellow worker. One commentator explains how. He says, A person's circumstances may be such that they cannot become a missionary or a preacher. Life may have put them in a position where they must get on with a secular job and where they must stay in one place and carry out the normal duties of life. But where they cannot go... Their money and their prayers and their practical support can go. And if they give that support, they have made themselves an ally of the truth. Not everybody can be in the front line. But everyone, by supporting those who are in the front line, can make themselves an ally of the truth. Now that's what Gaius was doing and the Apostle John is proud to call him my dear friend. But second, John exposes an arrogant fraud. An arrogant fraud, verses 9 and 10. 
Now, of course, Christians and non-Christians are often rightly distressed at the problems that so often seem to crop up in church life. But there may be some small crumb of comfort in the fact that this has always been so, even in the days of the Apostles. And one of the saddest examples is right here in the behaviour of a man called Diotrephes. Now whether Diotrephes was uh, an elder or a layman, he was obviously an extremely powerful figure in the church. And some scholars have tried to defend his behaviour by arguing that all he was actually doing was trying to protect the church from false teaching. Uh, I mean, after all, if you've got lots of travelling preachers around, you know, which ones do you trust? Uh, one of them arrives in your town saying that he's come from the Christians in Ephesus. W- what do you do? Uh, there's been no email telling you that he's coming. Uh, nobody's come on the cell phone to say, this guy's okay, you can put him in the pulpit. No, none of that. So how do you know? Well, it's an intriguing suggestion. The problem is there's absolutely no evidence in the text to say that that was what Diotrephes was trying to do. Quite the opposite. And John specifically identifies four areas where Diotrephes' conduct was destructive and out of line. First, in verse 9, John says... Diotrephes will have nothing to do with us. It seems that John had sent uh, a previous letter, probably containing specific advice on local church problems. But Diotrephes flatly rejected John's authority. He would have nothing to do with it. He might even have destroyed that letter. Now, I know I don't need to tell you how extremely serious that is because John isn't just anybody. He's an apostle. And the apostles were commissioned by Jesus in person. To reject their authority, therefore, is to reject the authority of Jesus himself. So what Diotrephes did was wrong and completely unjustified. But sadly, it's not rare. It's actually just an early example of the same rejection seen in those people today who reject the binding authority of the Word of God and repackage the Gospel in order to make it more digestible in the culture. But that's not all that Diotrephes was doing because secondly, in verse 10, He was gossiping maliciously. Now the word in the original there means babbling incoherently, which tells us that the accusations that he was making against John were entirely without substance. He was actually trying to to justify his own rebellion by getting other people to follow his example and not listen to John. But his arguments... Well, they were all hot air. Gossip has always been a problem, hasn't it, in church life, and it still is today. Uh, Back in the 4th century, Augustine of Hippo had a real problem with it, so much so that he he displayed a, a notice on his dinner table which said this, 
Let him who takes pleasure in mauling the lives of the absent know that his own disqualifies him from sitting at this table. I think that's an absolutely terrific definition, isn't it? I think I might put that on my dining room table. Gossip is mauling the lives of the absent. Augustine would have none of it. Neither should we. Third, also in verse 10, Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers. He's referring there to the preachers sent out by the Apostle John. And that wasn't simply Diotrephes being mean and unloving to fellow Christians. No, no, it was a deliberate refusal to obey a specific instruction from God's Apostle. John had said the churches ought to show these Christians hospitality. Diotrephes flatly refused. And fourth, Diotrephes insisted that others in the church follow his lead in this area and if they didn't, well, he would put them out of the church, verse 10. So you see what he's doing. He's, he's excommunicating loyal believers because they failed to side with him in his rejection of God's authority through God's apostle. Commentators have speculated endlessly about the pressures that might have caused Diotrephes to behave like this. So one of them is that this is right at the end of the apostolic era. There's only one apostle left alive. And that raised all kinds of questions about how the churches were going to be run after John died. But however real those pressures were, it's surely significant, isn't it? John doesn't mention them. Now, John says that all this happened for one simple reason. You'll find it in verse 9, where John says, Diotrephes loves to be first. Now, that, of course, is is the original and the greatest sin of all. Uh, It's the sin of Satan, isn't it? Uh, Who was unwilling to be what God had created him to be. Instead, he he wanted himself to be like God Most High, Isaiah 14, 14. So, it is the sin of pride, isn't it? And it's in all of us. Which means, of course, that under certain circumstances, each one of us has the potential to behave like Diotrephes. So, I think it's important and interesting to see how John proposes to deal with him. I don't know whether you agree with me on this, but I actually find John's proposal astonishingly lenient. John doesn't threaten him with automatic excommunication. He would have been perfectly justified in doing so, but he doesn't. Now, instead, in verse 10, he says that when he comes, he will call attention to what he's doing. And what he means is, he will expose his behaviour to the church. That might lead to some form of remedial discipline, perhaps, we're not told. But however you look at it, John's response is so gracious 
and so lenient that, well, I for one can't help wondering why. I've thought about this a great deal this week and I think there are probably two main reasons. The first is personal. So keep a finger in in 3 John and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, on page 714. Mark 10, page 714. I'm sure you'll remember that many, many years before John wrote this letter, uh, the Apostle John and his brother James came to Jesus one day and they asked to be given the most important places in his kingdom. Do you remember that? Somebody nod. Thank you. And Jesus uses that moment to teach a really precious lesson about discipleship. We'll pick it up at verse 41. Mark chapter 10, verse 41. When the ten heard about this, that is James and John's request, they became indignant with them. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Now notice this. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, I think that when John thought about Diotrephes wanting to be first, he remembered that there had been a time when he hadn't been so very different himself. And surely, there's a lesson there for all of us, isn't there? The second lesson, of course, the second reason, is a gospel reason. Because by his gracious response, what the Apostle is actually doing is reflecting the character of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't desire that sinners be condemned, but rather that they come to repentance. And again, friends, That must be our heartbeat as well, mustn't it? Well, come back to 3 John, because John draws Gaius' attention away from Diotrephes and points to a third character in the letter who is a fine example. A fine example. Verses 11 and 12. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. Who was this man, Demetrius? Well, in all probability, he was the man who delivered John's letter to Gaius in person. Clearly, he was, he was well known, because everyone was speaking well of him. Why was that? Well, John doesn't say, but 
If John was writing from Ephesus, it is possible that he might be the same Demetrius mentioned in Acts chapter 19. You don't need to turn to it now. It actually wasn't an especially common name in the first century. And in Acts 19, we're told about a silversmith called Demetrius who made and sold silver shrines for the goddess Artemis. So he was a thoroughly pagan man. And because his interests were threatened by the gospel, you may remember that he incited a great riot against the Apostle Paul, which effectively terminated his two-year ministry in the city. Now, if this is the same man, and if he had later been converted to Christ, well, then, of course, lots of people would have known about it, wouldn't they? And they would have been totally amazed by the transformation in his life. And you know, from historical documents outside the Bible, we're told that later, John appointed a man named Demetrius as bishop of Philadelphia. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, that is the church to which Jesus gives the highest commendation. Now, if this is the same man, and friends, it is possible, then it's hardly surprising that everyone spoke well of him. And John mentions him here as an example to be imitated. Now, we are all imitators. From, from childhood onwards, we, we look for role models to follow. It's perfectly natural, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but we have to choose our role models really carefully. We are not, says John, to imitate what is evil, but what is good. And the reason for that is simple. Look again at the second half of verse 11. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does evil has not seen God. Now that's just the moral test that we're so familiar with that John spoke about in his first letter. To do good is evidence that we've been born again. To do evil is to prove that we've actually never seen God with the eyes of faith. So the examples that we're to avoid are men like Diotrephes, who may be good at getting their own way, but break down churches. And the examples that we're to imitate are men like Demetrius, whose, whose lives have been completely turned around, and everyone knows it. Now, all of that is the background against which John says in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now friends, let me ask you, what gives you your greatest joy? Is it financial security? Is it physical health? Uh, is it seeing your children do well at university or having flourishing careers? Is it getting promoted at work? 
that those are all good things, by the way. But the question is not really whether you enjoy these things or whether these things give you pleasure, because quite frankly, it would be very odd if they didn't. No, the question is, do they give you your greatest joy? For nearly four decades, uh, Dick Lucas was the pastor at St. Helen's Church in the heart of London's financial district. And during his ministry, God used him to lead literally thousands, and I mean thousands, of businessmen to Christ at his Tuesday lunchtime services. But you know, whenever Dick was told of another businessman confessing faith in Christ, he would always say, well, that's great, but let's see where he is in six months' time. Now, don't misunderstand. He he wasn't saying that the conversion wasn't real or that it didn't matter. No, far from it. Because he preached on the importance of new birth every Tuesday for 37 years. But in his own way, he was saying the same thing that John says here. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Actually walking it out. Now what about you? Where is your greatest joy? Is it perhaps in the person that you counselled in the faith a number of years ago? Uh, Is it perhaps the person who responded to the testimony that you might have given on a building on the rock weekend or in a men's group? Or is it the person whose whose eyes are beginning to open in home group during the week in such a way that they're beginning to see how the gospel applies in the practical everyday business of life? Some of us here this morning remember the man who attended our carol service a couple of Christmases ago. Uh, He was a visitor from out of town and uh, he was dramatically converted during the service, not afterwards, just during the service. Quite unmistakable. That was great. It was actually thrilling for all of us who were there. But now, more than a year later, we still hear how he is pressing on in the faith. He and his wife are having quiet times together at 4.30 every morning. And his behaviour and his conversation are so radically changed that his colleagues at work can't believe it's the same man. That is the kind of thing that gives John his greatest joy. Hearing of Christians who are growing, who are maturing, who are actually walking in the truth. Not knowing it, not just head knowledge, but actually walking in it. My dear friends, may that be our greatest joy as well. Shall we pray?
Heavenly Father, you, you know us through and through. You know how very easy it is for any of us to get tripped up and to love to be first, to see ourselves at the centre of the universe. Please, will you draw us back to the cross again and again? Not only so that we may taste forgiveness afresh, but so that we may renew our covenantal vows, confessing Jesus as Lord not only in word, but in deed and in truth. And if there are any here this morning who are struggling to see this, please help them to see that there is another way apart from self-justification and self-promotion, self-focus and self-delusion. And that way begins by standing before the cross and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.